the best laid plans of mice and men are sure to go awry. Your own experience bears that out. How many plans have you laid in your own homes, in your businesses, for your futures in school or for anything else? But it seems as soon as you made your plans, God was pleased to break your plans. You wanted to go left, and you ended up having to go right. You zigged, but you had to zag. We're always having to make adjustments, aren't we? That our plans, the plans that we make, the blueprints for our lives, are often volatile things. They leave us feeling perhaps insecure. Boy, if we could only know how exactly things were going to work out. And so we lay blueprints. All of us use blueprints, don't we? If you've built a house in here, you used a blueprint. That blueprint, that design of every square inch of where every brick and every piece of wood is going to go was perfectly laid out before one brick was laid. Our favorite sports teams in the off-season, they lay blueprints for the season. Who are the players they're going to acquire? What are the offenses and the defenses that they're going to install? And so before a single cleat hits the field, before a single sneaker hits the court, there are well-laid plans for the success of the season. And then you play the game. And the best-laid plans often go awry. Some of you have been involved in businesses or you've started businesses where you thought that it was going to go one way and it went another way. Just recently, I went and I looked back at our church plant prospectus from the spring of 2014, and it was almost comical to think about the plans that we laid and where we hoped to go and what we thought we were going to do and where we thought we were going to be and where we really are. I'd left encouraged, of course, in the end, because God knows better. But even so, you know as well as I do what it's like to have even your best laid plans unravel. But what if there was a blueprint? What if there was a plan laid that could never unravel? What if there was a blueprint that could never go awry? Such that every jot and tittle of that plan, every angle of that blueprint, every aspect comes to perfect fruition, perfectly and immutably. If you were to find yourself caught up in that plan, what kind of security would it provide? What kind of comfort might it offer, even if all of your other plans go awry? That blueprint, according to Scripture, is what theologians through the ages have called a covenant of redemption. A covenant between the persons of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, one in essence, one will, as the first great act of redemption, covenanting together 
for the Father to make a plan, the Son to submit, and on the basis of his own obedience to win for himself the reward, the inheritance of his own treasured people. It is a plan that can never fail. So while the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, the best laid plans of God never can. It is sure to succeed. And indeed, it has in Christ. This is what I want to consider this afternoon. I want to consider the best laid plans of God in the one covenant of redemption. The Second London Baptist Confession puts it this way. Article 8, talking about the doctrine of Christ, lays as its foundation for the work of Christ and the person of Christ this eternal covenant says this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. That it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ according to a covenant made between them both. Louis Burkhoff put it this way, it's the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father has given him. That is the covenant of redemption. But there are many people who would say, well, I don't see the phrase covenant of redemption anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I cannot be confident that this is, in fact, in the Bible. Well, friends, let's remember that there's all kinds of things that we understand to be true about what the Bible teaches, that when we take different parts of the Bible and measure them against each other and interpret them in light of one another, that we, by necessary inference, arrive at certain theological conclusions like God as Trinity. You can't find Trinity anywhere in the Bible. And yet we go from one part of the Bible to the next, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And from Scripture we find, indeed, there is one true and only God, one in essence who is yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each truly and fully God, sharing in the one divine essence, and yet each cooperating perfectly with one another in the divine plan of redemption. All of Scripture teaches it. We don't have a word for it but it's there, and so is the covenant of redemption. And I aim this afternoon to prove it to you. And so from Scripture, I want to answer five essential questions about this covenant. Five essential questions about the covenant of redemption. Number one, when was the covenant made? When was the covenant made? Secondly, who are the parties of this covenant? Who are the parties of this covenant? Every covenant has parties that make commitments. 
Thirdly, what are the requirements of this covenant? What are the requirements of this covenant? That is what is required of the parties that are committed to themselves or committed to the covenant. Fourthly, what are the rewards of the covenant? In other words, if the terms or the conditions of the covenant are fulfilled, what rewards await the faithful fulfillment of the covenant conditions? What are the rewards? Fourthly, or fifthly, and finally, why does it matter? These are the five things I want to consider this afternoon. When was it made? Who are the parties? What are the requirements? What are the rewards? And why does it matter? Let's consider that first question. When was the covenant made? We see from all over the Bible that this covenant of redemption, this agreement between the Father and the Son is eternal and it is pre-temporal, before time. Ephesians 3.11. There Paul unfolds the mystery of, quote, the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, Paul says, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, check this, before the ages began. Titus 1.2, eternal life, that's the subject of Titus 1, eternal life, it was something that, quote, God promised before the ages began. The Apostle Peter says something similar. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Believers, he says, were redeemed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last days for you. The Apostle John, Revelation 13, 8, follows the same train of thought by perceiving the Redeemer as a lamb, get this, as slain before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was slain somewhere around the first century, just outside of Jerusalem. But John sees a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How do we make sense of all of that? I want to pull some of those threads in the coming minutes. But for our purposes now, we're answering the question, when was this covenant made? According to the eternal purpose, before the ages began, eternal life before the foundations of the world. It is an eternal and a pre-temporal covenant. But that leads us to our next question. Who then are the parties of the covenant? Well, it only stands to reason that if it's eternal and pre-temporal, it cannot be made by any man or anybody that was created. It has to be made by the uncreated creator himself, the only one who is eternal and pre-temporal in his very essence. It has to be made between the Father and the Son. At its most fundamental level in the Bible, a covenant is, a, is an agreement that is made between two or more parties. You may remember God made a covenant with Abraham. Jonathan made a covenant with David. Husbands and wives make covenants with one another, and so on. 
Those covenants entail commitments to one another. They promise explicitly or implicitly rewards for obedience and sanctions for failure to fulfill our promises. Well, the covenant of redemption is a little different. The primary parties in the covenant of of redemption are God the Father and God the Son. And there's lots of places in the Bible that we could go to look at this. It's beyond the scope of our time to look at all of them. But you could write a handful of these down. We could look at Psalm 110. We could look at Isaiah's servant songs. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53. It's all there. Zechariah 6. Ephesians 1. Each one of those are deserving of their own sermon in themselves And if I had more time, I would give them to you. I think it would prove to be a fruitful study. But for now, what I want to do is I just want to show you the parties of this covenant from only a couple of passages. And so take your Bibles, the copies that you have of God's Holy Scripture, and I want you to open up your Bible to Psalm 40. Open up to the 40th Psalm. Psalm 40. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim them and tell of them, yet they are more than could be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Let's just consider these first handful of verses. In the first five verses, verses one through five, David is praising God for rescuing him. We see that in the first three verses. And then he declares that the one who trusts in the Lord is blessed. But then what does the relationship between the Lord and the one who trusts in the Lord look like? Well, in verse six, the psalmist notes what the Lord, first of all, does not require. He does not want cold, external, religious formalism. He doesn't want going through the motions, honoring God with lips, though having hearts that are far from him. No, in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist commits himself to give what God does require. Do you see that there? I delight to do your will, O my God. In essence, he says, I commit to love the Lord, my God, with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my strength. Coincidentally, 
This is the only kind of worship God accepts. Is a wholehearted worship. Not a going through emotions worship. He demands, according to his law, perfect, permanent, and perpetual delighting in obeying him. Not mere external going through the motions, but a heart-level delight. And here's the deal. God is good to judge us for anything less. That is a frightening prospect. So, David, even though he wrote the psalm, can't claim verse 8 for himself without grave hypocrisy. You know the life of David as well as I do. There's no way that David with a straight face could say that this is ultimately what characterizes every affection in all of his life permanently, perpetually, and perfectly. And so the question is, who then can? We can't. I can't. Who in the world could possibly make this kind of commitment that we see in verse 8 and do it? The answer to that question, the answer to the riddle of verse 8 here in Psalm 40, we need to be able to answer it through apostolic eyes. And when we do, that is when we look at this psalm through the eyes of the apostles, we will not be able to unsee the covenant of redemption. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. You should be familiar with it already. We've been there. I just preached through Hebrews this last year. So it's familiar to many of us, but it's worth seeing again with fresh eyes. Hebrews, all the way to the end of your Bible, we're going to be in chapter 10. And notice when you get there in verses 5, 6, and 7 that there's indented printing. That's because it's a quote. And what is it quoting? Well, if you look at a cross-reference at the bottom of your page or out to the side, you'll see that it's quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. We just looked at that. But I want you to look closely at the beginning of verse 5. Who does the writer say spoke these words? Notice, it's not David. What does he say? When Christ came into the world, he said. Who said? Christ said. Whose words are these? They are the words of the only begotten Son incarnate in the man Jesus Christ. The words of Psalm 40 are Christ's words. And so in Psalm 40, Verses 6 through 8, which we see quoted here, we hear the son's voice through David's pen. That the psalm contains the son's words to the father as he submitted himself to the conditions of an agreement between the two of them. But what are the conditions? What are the requirements of their covenant? We see that in the following verses. Beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 10. The writer explains how the son agreed to come to do his father's will, and the father's will was to provide the son with a body in which to come. In other words, before the ages began, the son agreed to assume a human nature with all of our weaknesses, yet without sin. And the father willed, see that there in verse 
9 and 10, that the Father willed that through the offering of his body, the body, Psalm 40 says, that the Father prepared for him, that through the offering of his body, this only begotten Son would save a people from their sins by establishing a better covenant. And likewise, before the ages began, the Father made His will known to the Son, required of Him to become the guarantor of this new covenant of grace, and agreed to provide Him with both a body and the Holy Spirit through which to do this work. And so the question becomes, who could possibly say, I delight to do your will, delight on a heart level to do your will without an ounce of insincerity or hypocrisy? Who could perform perfect, permanent, perpetual obedience to God from the heart to the point of death in order to merit justification for himself and for others? Beloved, we answer only one. The one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ. And so we see that the parties of the covenant are the Father and the Son. The Son committing to do the Father's will, the Father providing Him with all that He needs in order to perform His commission. All of it ultimately for the goal of redeeming for Himself a people. We've seen the parties and we've seen the requirements, but now I want to take a moment and I want to consider what then are the promises and rewards. If these are the conditions, if this is what the Lord Jesus Christ in His incarnation is committed to fulfill, saying that it is like food to Him to do the will of the Father, it's His very delight to obey God all the way to the very marrow of his bones and the bottom of his soul, every minute of every day, of every week, of every month of his life on this earth, permanently, perpetually, and perfectly, that if he fulfills that mission, what does the Father promise him and what are his rewards? Because covenants not only make requirements on the parties involved, but they promise reward for obedience. And so when the Father and the Son entered into then their eternal agreement with one another, before the ages began, before the foundations of the world, the Father made certain promises to the Son. We got lots of places that we could go for this, but I'm just going to go ahead and synthesize them to you, or for you, before looking at one particularly helpful passage. We've already considered how the Father here in Hebrews 10, in light of Psalm 40, promised to prepare a human body fit for the Son's work as mediator. But he also promised to endow the Son with all of the necessary gifts and grace to succeed in his work. To this end, the Father gave his Son the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John says, without measure, such that he is empowered with the very power that created the entire cosmos, such that he might perfectly fulfill the mission that the Father has sent him on, the mission that he's willingly submitted himself to. And yet the Father not only supported his son's work in the power of the Spirit, but he also promised to deliver him from death. He promised that in delivering him from death, he would destroy sin and Satan and death once and for all. And as a reward for his faithful work as mediator, the the father promised to give his son a kingdom for his own possession 
And that kingdom would be populated from men and women and children from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, all who call upon the name of the Lord and believe upon Him for the salvation from their sins. And then finally, the Father promised to exalt the Son with glory, the same glory that they shared before the foundation of the world. And He promised to give them all authority in heaven and on earth to rule the world and to build His church until the end of the age when He comes again to judge the living and the dead with all authority. The gospel wins. Why? Because of a covenant. Because the Father made promises to the Son and the Son made commitments to the Father. And the Son and the power of the Spirit will keep every one of His commitments. And in keeping those commitments, the Father will keep all of His promises and give the Son all of those rewards. But what are they? Turning your Bibles to your left to John chapter 10. John 10. Read with me, beginning in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want you to note that the Father gives the Son three things in this passage. Three things the Father gives. First, in verse 18, notice that he gives the Son authority. The authority to do what? Jesus says to lay down his own life as an atonement for sin and to take it up again. So the Father gives the Son, first of all, authority. That authority is going to be necessary. 
It's a delegated authority given to Christ in His incarnation so that He might fulfill the second thing that the Father gives Him, and that is, at the end of verse 18, a charge or a commission. He says, this charge I received from my Father. The Son's incarnation and death was the Father's will. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So according to the covenant of redemption, the Son submitted himself to the Father, and the Father gave the Son the requisite authority to accomplish the plan, to accomplish and fulfill his commission, just as the Father sent him to do. So he's given Christ authority, and he's given the Lord Jesus Christ a charge or a commission. But thirdly and finally, he gives him a people. What reward would the Father give to the Son if the Son faithfully completes the commission that he's given? The answer we see in verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father rewards His Son with a people for His own possession, and the Son rewards His people with eternal life. All those who believe upon Him for the forgiveness of sins. He rewards them, not as a work, but from the merit that He Himself has earned on the basis of His own obedience, gives to His elect all of those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ eternal life. Beloved, I want you to let this sink in for a minute. From eternity past, if you are in Jesus Christ by faith, from eternity past, you are the Son's great reward and joy. That changes everything. I want to lead you to one final passage to reinforce this point. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Right there in the middle of your Bible. If you're not used to peeling apart the gilded edges of the middle of your Bible, just open it right about the 50% mark and you'll probably find it. Isaiah 53. This is the fourth of four servant songs. Songs about the servant, the anointed one, the Messiah. And I want you to listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the faithful work and reward of God's servant. In verse 7, we see the servant's suffering and trial. You can scan through that. In verse 8, we see his execution. In verse 9, we see his burial. He has been faithful to do exactly what God's will commissioned, and that's what we see in verse 10. Read with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong or with the great. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen now, the prophet Isaiah describes the faithful work and the reward of God's servant here. In verse 10, Isaiah says, it was the father's will to crush his son, but that the son's suffering there again in verse 10 will ultimately cause the father's will to prosper or literally to succeed. You can see that further up in 52, behold, my servant will act wisely. Literally, he will prosper, be successful. Same idea here. The will of the Lord will be successful in his hand, in his suffering. But this is no cosmic child abuse, as many contend. The father having a plan, pushing his son to suffer. No. According to the covenant of redemption, the son suffered willingly. Why? Why would the son agree before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, why would he agree to undergo, to take upon himself a body that the Father would give him, Psalm 40, Hebrews 10, undergo such suffering according to the will of God, submitting himself to it, why would he do it? Because a great reward is promised. That by willingly submitting himself to the Father and by laying down his life for his sheep, Isaiah says the Son will, according to verse 10, see his offspring, literally his seed. Is a seed important in the Bible? One might contend that the theme through the whole Bible, it's all about the seed. Who is the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head? Who is the seed of Abraham that's going to bless all of the nations? Who is the seed of David who's going to rule on an everlasting throne? Here he is. He's the servant. He's the promised king. He is the Son of man, given glory and power and dominion, who will yet willingly suffer for the sake of his elect, for the forgiveness of sins, that he might bear away the sin of many. That he will see his seed. All of those who become children of God by being united to him by faith. Not only that, not only will he see his offspring, not only is he going to see those for whom he made an offering, but he shall prolong his days. That even though he died, he lives, and we live with him. He sees his seed, and his seed will live with him as his days have been prolonged, exalted unto eternal life. Just like we saw in John 10, the son is rewarded with a people. That's why in verse 11 it says that he will see, you see that there? And he will be satisfied. The church is not a consolation prize. All of the redeemed from every age, beginning in Genesis 3 all the way to the coming of Christ, is no consolation prize, no. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, implies that we are the very joy that was set before him, the very motivation that would drive him to endure the cross 
and despised the shame, the joy set before him. Those whom he, Jude writes at the end of his letter, that he would present before the Father at the end of the age with joy. He sees his seed, his days have been prolonged, and he looks at his ragtag bunch of redeemed saints, and he's not thinking, that's what I died for? He is satisfied. It is finished. There is nothing more to be done. There is no greater reward to be won than the reward that the Father gives him for laying down his life for his sheep. And so just like we saw in John 10, the son is rewarded with the people. And then notice in verse 11, the son rewards his people with eternal life. That through him we are accounted righteous. That's the language of justification because he bore our iniquities. That is, he took away our sins. If you and I are going to have eternal life with Christ before an all-holy God in the face of the Father that if we are going to endure eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth, we have to not only be forgiven of our sins, but we have to be reckoned and counted perfectly righteous. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ committed himself to do in the covenant of redemption. That I will come and I will obey in every way that they failed to obey from the heart, delighting to do your will. And I will obey even to the point of death in order to exhaust every last curse of the law against my people. So that they would not only be forgiven of all of their sins, but that in me my righteousness would be theirs. And they would become sons and daughters just as I am your firstborn son for all ages to come. That theme of firstborn son plays in the background of verse 12 when it says there that therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he will divide the spoil with the strong. The father gives us to his son and the son gives us merited righteousness so that in verse 12 we might be counted among the many in whom he divides his double portion. We are sons and daughters of the most high, heirs of the one true God, co heirs with Christ. That's Isaiah 53, 12. He is the firstborn son who has been exalted to the right hand of majesty on high, and as such, he has inherited all things. And now all those who are in him by faith, justified by his righteousness because of his obedient life and his substitutionary death, for all of them, he divides the spoils. The Father gives us to the Son as a reward, and the, the Son gives His reward to us. That is what Christ committed to do before the foundation of the world. The best laid plans of the Father and the Son can never go awry. This is what John Flavel, the Puritan pastor theologian, wanted to impress when he provided a hypothetical, hypothetical dialogue to help his congregation guard against grumbling by appreciating the covenant of redemption. Many of you have heard me recite this before, but it's worth repeating given all the things that we've considered. It's a hypothetical dialogue between the Father and the Son, imagining that pre-temporal, eternal covenant 
whereby the Father and the Son make commitments to one another. And it goes like this. The Father says, My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, Oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather that they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee Bring all of your bills that I may see what they owe you, Lord. Bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all of their debt. The Father replies, But my son, if you undertake... For them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son replies, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, or in the words of Isaiah 53, crush him, though it will impoverish all my riches, and it will empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. That is the covenant of redemption. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? I'll give you a handful of things to consider. First of all, the covenant of redemption unites all of Scripture under a single plan of redemption. The gospel is not God's plan B. The triune God didn't hang his hopes on Adam in the garden or Israel in Canaan and then scramble for a backup plan after they failed. No, in eternity past, before all time, the Father and the Son agreed to create and to save a people for God's own glory. The burden of covenant theology is to trace God's eternal covenant through the unfolding of the promise covenant of grace through his historic covenants with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, and Israel, and David, to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the new covenant. That is the path that we're on in this sermon series. To see Christ in all the scriptures. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll begin by considering the covenant of works made between God and Adam in the garden. And then the Sunday after that, Lord willing, we'll consider Noah and God's stabilization of the creation through His common grace. And then we'll consider His special promises to Abraham and 
how they're fulfilled in Christ, and of David, fulfilled in Christ, and of all the types and shadows in Israel, fulfilled in Christ, and of the glories of the new covenant. It's going to be a great few weeks. I hope that you're edified by it. That's the path that we're on. But all of it ultimately is the tracing out of God's blueprint, His well-played plan from the beginning of creation all the way to the new creation in His one covenant of grace promised and fulfilled. It unites all of Scripture. Secondly, it teaches us about the love of God. That should have been impressed upon you already by a number of the passages that we've looked at, and Flavel's quote is especially helpful. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this, was never such a joy in heaven as upon this happy conclusion in agreement. The whole Trinity rejoiced in it. Beloved, this is a truth, here's an implication, a truth that you need to take to the bank. The Father does not love you because Christ died for you. Christ died for you because from before the ages, before the foundation of the world, according to a glorious covenant of redemption, the Father loved you. Can we do away with those gross and biblically inaccurate thoughts of the Son somehow standing between us and a fiery, angry, wrathful Father? Like perhaps an older sibling would hiding a younger sibling from the violence of an abusive dad? Can we rid ourselves once and for all of that thought? And can we content ourselves on the reality of God's love for us? That Christ's work doesn't persuade or obligate his otherwise angry and reluctant Father to love us. No, in Christ, the Father's electing love for us is expressed and revealed in the mystery, incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of his Son and is now being poured into your hearts, according to Romans 5, by the Holy Spirit. His love belongs to us in Christ, and it has always been ours from before the foundation of the world. And we came into possession of it the moment that we, in time, space, and history, were brought by His grace to repent and believe in the gospel. Thirdly, not only does it remind us of His love, but it provides us with assurance and comfort. You're a Christian today, not because you've somehow made yourself lovely to God. As we've just considered, you were chosen in the Son before you ever did anything good or bad, according to His eternal purposes of grace. If you're a Christian today, it's because before the foundation of the world, Christ mentioned your name to His Father and asked for you, and the Father has given you to Him as a reward for His obedience. Because the Father cannot deny the Son in anything that the Son asks. For the Son has fulfilled all of the Father's requirements. If you are a Christian today, no one can snatch you out of the hand of Christ because the Father has given you to Him and the Son and the Father are one. 
you are secure. And so, beloved, when we consider this eternal blueprint for how Christ earned our redemption as the reward for his faithful work, we should be comforted and assured. In fact, we should be comforted because we're assured. And we're assured that we are saved ultimately not by our own merit, but by His merit. We are acceptable to the Father not because of our obedience, but because of His obedience. The obedience He committed Himself to from before the very foundation of the world. Question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism put it this way, that although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and that I have never kept any of them, and am still prone always to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sins, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I would accept such benefit with a believing heart. Do you believe that, beloved? Is that your hope? Not just when you first became a Christian, but do you rest in his grace in the same way today as when you received him, that is, by faith? Beloved, rest in Christ. This is what the covenant of redemption highlights. The obedience of Christ is our legal representative and the merit that he has earned for us. Beloved, this is the foundation of all of our comfort and all of our assurance. That is the covenant of redemption. So in summary, I'm going to let Sinclair Ferguson summarize it for us. He puts it so well. What is the covenant of redemption? That before all time, prior to all worlds, when there was nothing outside of God himself, when the Father, Son, and Spirit found eternal, absolute, and unimaginable blessing, pleasure, and joy in their holy trinity, it was their agreed purpose to create a world which would fall and in unison but at infinitely great cost to bring grace and salvation. That is the covenant of redemption. Let's pray.